0: Hello there, it's six o'clock. I'm Michelle Dubry and this is and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. Now, are you an employee? If you are, have you been perhaps a very loyal, dedicated worker for years, if not decades, to your employer? Can you imagine, if so then, basically being given the boot? with immediate effect on a Zoom call. That is what happened today to 800 seafarers employed by p ferries. Literally got told, you know, there's an important announcement coming, gather around the Zoom call, and off. They've gone. People, I tell you, are furious. Is this really the way for a company to treat its staff? Many, of course, say no. And I'll tell you what else many say, that this is because of Brexit. Really? We'll be getting into that tonight, that is for sure. And Russia has issued a 15-point peace plan. Are we at the start at the end of the war in Ukraine? I really do hope so. And plans to cap MPs earnings from their second jobs has been dropped. Sensible move or not? And Chancellor Sunak is under increasing pressure to drop the planned national insurance hike. What do you think the chances are that he's gonna listen and actually drop it? Well, welcome back to Jubes & Co. We're on your TV, YouTube, digital radio, social media. We are everywhere, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, Jonathan Steele, international affairs journalist, Charlotte Pickles, who's the director of the reform think tank and a former advisor to Ian Duncan Smith, and Fleet Street's longest serving political editor, Nigel Nelson, how can that be? Because I thought he was only about twenty-one. Nigel, there you go. Longest <laughs> serving. How long have you been a political editor for? Since nineteen eighty-six. Nineteen eighty-six. Been through seven prime ministers. Have you now? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, there you go. What he does not know about politics, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is not worth knowing. I can tell you that. Now you know the drill on the Tubes and Co. As well. It's not just about us and our thoughts. It's about you at home as well and yours. What's on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me, at michellejubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already. You've got all the best bits. You can watch us live. You might even be doing so already. And if you are, good evening to you. Now, our top story. Can you imagine, as I was asking earlier on, being loyal to a company? As many people are, you know, really. Some people often put their job before anything else. Working all hours, traveling everywhere. What well, can you imagine then if you've dedicated years of service to an employer, or perhaps even if you're just at the start of your career with them, and then getting the boot? Okay, but then, not only that, you get the boot with immediate effect on a video Zoom call.
1: Therefore, I am sorry to inform you that this means your employment is terminated with immediate effect on the grounds of redundancy.
0: Your final day of employment is today. Your final day of employment is today. Oh, that's the video there he was watching. 800 seafarers at P&O Ferries received that today. I've got to say, people are furious.
2: These are hard-working, dedicated staff who have given years in service to P&O. The way they have been treated today is wholly unacceptable. And my thoughts are first and foremost with them. Reports of workers being given zero notice and escorted off their ships with immediate effect, while being told cheaper alternatives would take up their roles, shows the insensitive way in
3: which p have approached this issue
0: the anger there, you can feel it. It's palpable, isn't it? Uh, And he says about being frog-marched off the ships. I've got to say, uh, some staff members decided no, they're not having it. The captain of the Pride of Hull, for example, stayed put, said no, thank you. Many staff staged a sit-in. There were buses, apparently, of agency workers on the side of the docks ready to take their jobs. The firm said it was a tough decision, but it would not be a viable business without the changes. Well, joining me now to discuss this further is employment law specialist Stephen Taylor. Good evening to you. Uh, first and foremost, yep. Stephen, uh, is what p and have done legal?
1: Well, um, we obviously need to see a bit more detail, but it does seem to me that it's not. Um, I think in several respects, it's unlawful. Um, there's been a failure to consult. They appear to be terminating employment immediately without notice. Um, they don't seem to have informed the government, which is a requirement of redundancy law. Um, they uh, presumably will be paying holiday, um, unpaid holiday. It's not clear what the package that they're putting forward um, includes. But no, I think that there's a very strong case. The union certainly would have a very strong case to bring, um, to bring a case to the employment tribunal and that this could not be lawful.
0: Stephen, the, the argument the <coughs> you know, will actually use um, is that actually these changes, the restructuring, they will call it, of their workforce was essential to remain viable as a business. And they will try and argue that actually that meant that they could bypass the process because, correct me if I'm wrong, the consultation of 100 plus is about 45 days. They will argue that we didn't have time to do that.
1: Uh, well, this is this is true, but they they can argue it, but I don't think they're going to be successful from what I can see. I mean, the the law is pretty clear on this. It has to be some really sudden disaster, or it has to be um, something out of their control, um, something that prevented them from consulting um, for 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 the forty five days. Um, they, um, I don't think they would be able to sustain that argument from from what I can see. Um, I, I think it'd be very unlikely that that would be.
0: And in terms of what the employees can do next, um, I mean, the company has mentioned in their little Zoom thing that I was just playing earlier on. They were mentioning that they're going to be paying enhanced severance uh, packages to these people. Uh, is it going to be viable for the employees to take uh P&O to uh, tribunal or do we just need to wait and see the more detail?
1: Well, we do need to wait and see more detail. Um, it depends entirely what the size of the severance package they're offering is. It's going to have to be pretty spectacularly good um, in, in order to be more than they would potentially win in an employment tribunal. And I think the union can bring a claim. I don't think it, you know, the, the workers, are, it could can, can be, be done on behalf of them by the union. Um, and then they can look for um, special compensation for them for failure to consult. But there's been a failure to consult individually, too, which is, again, part of redundancy law, and um, might render these as unfair dismissal. in which case this, 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 the extent of the compensation could be high, um, you know, many months of salary, potentially, particularly if they don't get other jobs in between. Um, and they could then, um, the, the company could be facing a large number of people with significant claims. They would need to settle them. I think the severance package, which we don't know the detail of, is going to have to include holiday, it's going to have to include notice, it's going to have to include compensation for failure to consult, and probably a little bit more too, in order to make sure that people, it'd be worth people's while taking it and settling. So the, the, the workers will get decent compensation, provided, of course, they have over two years service. Those who have less than two years service um, won't get this.
0: And uh, my final question to you: There's been a lot of kind of rumor, if you like, on social media today that this is the fall of Brexit. What people are saying and suggesting is that actually there's been essentially a bonfire of workers' rights, and that if we were still within the EU, this would never have been able to happen. How true is that?
1: I'm totally untrue. Um, there's been no bonfire whatsoever. Um, all European law, um, existing European law, has been simply transmitted used into the UK law, this is precisely the same. Nothing is different as a result of Brexit.
0: OK, Stephen Taylor, uh, employment law specialist, thank you very much for your time. Now, let's go to our um, uh, reporter, Ellie Costello. Uh, you are in, I think you're in Dover, aren't you, Ellie? Are you in Dover? Are you in outer I'm space? They like are the spot.
4: 800 staff, which has happened with immediate effect. Yes, I'm down at Doverport now. You can see 3 PO ferries just over my left-hand shoulder here. They have been parked there all day and they're not going anywhere fast. We are hearing reports that agency staff have been brought into the car park down to the left-hand side uh, of me here. And what's been going on this afternoon is the staff have been coming off these ships and are trying to be replaced with agency staff. And it has been a really tense afternoon here in Dover. The RMT union have been protesting on the streets just outside of the port here. They actually closed two of the streets. They are demanding better treatment for their workers. The workers on these cruise ships found out on Zoom this afternoon that they no longer had a job effective from today. It was a pre-recorded message on Zoom. I was speaking to a lady earlier who says that her friend, has been working on one of these cruise ships for 20 years and she has spent the afternoon in tears now that her career has come to an end. Now, p and Cruises have said that their ferries will not operate in the next few days. They are asking customers who have booked cruises to go with another liner, which you can see over here on my right-hand side. DFDS liners are going to be trying to take some of the passengers that p o were supposed to be taking across the channel this weekend. But, Michelle, this is a massive shock. PNO is one of the UK's leading ferry companies, carrying more than 10 million passengers per year before the pandemic and 15% of all the freight cargo in and out of the UK. Now, the company says that staff will receive compensation packages. They appreciate that they haven't been given any notice, uh, but they say this is the only way to future-proof the business. They say they're in a £100 million debt year after year. And at the moment, the business is not viable. Uh, and that is why they are investing in cheaper agency labour. That is not going down well with the unions, though. and We know there's going to be later protests
0: throughout the night. Ellie Costello, thanks for that. Um, I'll tell you what else it's not going down with. The great British public, Nigel Nelson. I'm telling you, people are furious. Lots of people messaging in saying they are basically disgusting. Lots of other words coming, but that is the sentiment from the public. Your thoughts?
2: Absolutely right. Um, And Stephen suggests that the whole thing is illegal. I think it probably is. Um, But even if it's not, it is disgraceful, despicable behaviour. These are the actions of a uh, a 19th-century mill owner, not sort of a 21st-century company. So the company obviously knew it was in trouble, so it's hardly... it, It came as a surprise to the management... The correct way of doing these things would be you put together a survival plan, you ask for voluntary redundancies, you work at how to, how to sort your labour force out and you have a proper consultation, 45 days that you were talking about, um, to go through the whole thing. There's absolutely no need to do this except to try and ambush British workers with cheaper foreign labour.
0: Hmm. Um, your thoughts? Sorry about the interruption there. That was the protest. I'm uh, just cutting into the sound, as you can see on the screen. If you're listening, you're thinking, what was that uh, interruption there? That was basically the protesters are blocking um, the ways and a couple of lorry drivers, safe to say, are not too happy about it. Anyway, sorry, Charlotte. I mean, I share
3: what's already been said, which is that it's an absolutely appalling and actually just fundamentally inhumane way to treat people. Um but I actually think it's quite interesting, this argument that p are struggling. There might be legitimate, in fact, there probably are legitimate uh, questions around the structure and, and how to make it a viable uh, company going forward. But let's not forget, p is actually part of a, a, a much bigger global company. And that global company, DP World, is one of the largest shipping uh, and logistics fir- firms in the world that had a 25% increase in their profits in 2020, and they make over a billion in profits. So the idea that they couldn't have afforded to have supported one of their subsidiaries to actually deal with this situation in a, in a, I totally agree, both legal and ethical, moral way, um, I think is just ridiculous. And, you know, this will lead, as previously it has done, from the, the, the unions for calls of, you know, nationalization and, and all that kind of stuff, which, which we did get previously. And this is exactly what gives capitalism a bad, faith, uh, a bad faith, because it's just you're treating people in such an appalling way. And that makes people think that kind of a market model is a problem. And it's not. But these are exactly the bad characters that, that shouldn't be in charge of anything. Jonathan Steele?
5: Well, I mean, obviously I agree with the uh, colleagues on this panel, I mean, it's und- indefensible behavior. It's like a banana republic or something, that this sort of thing. To give people no notice at all and just uh, uh, sack them overnight is, is amazing. I mean, why didn't the company announce that it was in difficulties and start consultation? I mean, it's, it's just uh, almost like hijacking the workforce and just kicking them. Overboard.
0: Well, someone that's got an alternate view, Katie. Uh, Katie has gotten in, uh, in touch on the email saying, basically, Michelle, I've been made redundant twice. No, it's not pleasant, but it's not personal. It's just business. The staff aren't at a disadvantage. They've been given a very uh, generous severage package and help to get uh, another job and counselling support, says Katie. Now, I've got to say, Nigel, I do have to disclose a little bit of a, a past history here because my background is not TV presenting. My background is actually business. And as part of the work that I've done in business, I've worked on multiple uh, what we would call business transformation programmes, so restructuring of businesses that have taken various different guises, but very often when a company needs to pivot, change, restructure for whatever reason, unfortunately, um, people, uh, employees, are the casualties of that. And I think that actually the route that P&O will essentially be trying to go down is one of you know, operational emergency, they will, I'm assuming, I don't know, I could be wrong, I'd love to be wrong, um, I'm assuming that what they will say is the the viability of the uh, the business was such we were hemorrhaging money, 100 million pounds losses, uh, they've got huge pension liabilities, you know, there's, there's a lot going on with this organization, so what they will try and push back is actually, we did not have time to, uh, you know, do this big kind of process and all the rest of it, what they will argue, because they do still have some employees, they will say we have to do a complete restructuring of the business um, in order to remain a viable entity f- so that everybody didn't end up losing their jobs. What well, would you say to that?
2: Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm sure you were a very humane boss when you were doing it. Um, well, I was a
0: consultant, so um, I, was, I used to consult to firms.
2: But humanely?
0: Well, actually, of of course, Uh, I was never responsible for delivering redundancy notices to people at all. But I was certainly involved in different meetings where restructuring conversations were happening. And one of the things that that's always left me with is a sense that many organizations, you know, when you're an employee, you give your heart and soul to an organization. Mm. You do. You often put it before your marriage, your family. You know, some people put their job before their children. And I guess I've been on the other side of that when I've seen an organisation in trouble or needing to change. And they don't necessarily sit there always and go, oh, that, you know, Sharon, she's a fine woman. She's been with us for 12 years and is a nice person, has made these sacrifices. Often it does come down to the very crass nuts and bolts of we've got X amount of headcount, X amount of... Uh, Expenditure and X amount of savings to make.
2: Okay, Um, but in this case, it's hardly as if the bosses woke up uh, this morning and thought, "Oh, good lord, we've been losing hundred million pounds every year for ages. Um, Let's make everyone redundant." They knew about this before they issued issued that um, uh, video firing people. And they could have done it in a, in a much gentler way. All they have to do is, is start a consultation. The unions may have some great ideas about how to keep the company viable. Unions often do. What you need to do is, is open a discussion about what is happening. Be honest with the workforce. This company is going to collapse unless we make severe savings. That means people's jobs will be lost. I understand all that. What you do is you talk to your work- workforce, you talk to your unions, you listen to some ideas that that, that uh, they may have for improving things. What you don't do is suddenly get on Zoom and fire everybody,
3: and not even live on Zoom. I mean, there was literally nobody there. Nobody could answer question, questions. There was there was no engagement, and that's why I think they've handled it so so appallingly. Because actually, you're you're absolutely right. Of course, it's legitimate to think about how you make a company viable. Of course, you know, given what we've been through in the pandemic, the economic uncertainty now, the price surges, there are going to be all sorts of businesses, both small and large, that are going to have to go through transformation, as you've said. But I have given out. I've sat down and done redundancies. I've given out those notices. I've had those conversations. And that's the least you should do as an employer. You should have that respect for the people who've worked for you and be willing to sit down or at least if it has to be on screen because the volumes are so high, be there and answer questions. I so completely I'm agree.
5: Some and time. Employers obviously planned this for some time because they managed to get these alternative workers ready. They got vans to bring them to the port side and so on. So it was like a sort of a criminal organisation overnight to, to, to get the thing ready and to, to, to like, it's piracy. Basically.
0: Well, I'm not sure we can say it's like a criminal organisation. I'm sure they would say if they were here and they're not here to defend themselves, but I'm sure if they were, they would say that they believe that they've acted legitimate, uh, legitimately. One thing that I fear, though, and I think that you're right, Charlotte, I think that actually, you know, you should be able to do business in a decent way. I think that decent should, uh, business should be done decently. Um, but what I worry about, and I talk a lot on this programme about unintended consequences, and we've got a lot of people at the moment who have had a huge lifestyle shift, a work-life balance shift, and I'm referring to things like working from home. Many people used to have to go to, I don't know, let's just say like a London office, whatever. Used to go to a London office five days a week. Pandemic has kind of thrown everything up in the air, re you know, reshaking everything. And lots of people now think it's wonderful that they work from home three days a week, two days a week, four days a week, maybe even five days a week. And I worry about some of this because whilst I think it's great this work life balance, I also kind of know what goes on in business and I wonder slash worry slash hope that I'm wrong again, how many businesses will be sitting there right now looking at their overheads and going, right, okie dokie. We've now realized we can operate with a remote workforce. Um, our wage bill is currently whatever it is, million per annum. And if we were uh, to look to outsource our staff to a different uh, continent, people will say, like, follow the Sun principle. You can offer a, basically a 24-7 response uh, service at a fraction of the cost. And I worry, Jonathan, that that might be something that we start to see slightly more of.
5: Well, we may see more of it, but what you're describing is something that is still voluntary. People are asked, do you want to work at home? How is your life Work balance going, and uh, so it's done through consultation and voluntary agreement. Not done overnight like these people have been doing with B and.
0: Yeah, B and I, o. Gu- I guess Nigel. What I mean, what I mean in with this is that organisations will be, and if they're not already, I suspect some of them will be starting to do it. Looking at their overheads, looking at their remote workforce, pointing two uh, two and two together, and saying actually. We've now demonstrated our business can operate remotely. And if we can operate remotely and we can find the skills elsewhere, at a fraction of the cost, why wouldn't we outsource our workforce? For
2: a start, they're already saving money anyway. Um, An awful lot of firms have been able to actually bring in flexible working thanks to what we've learned through the pandemic. Um, And as a result of that, they can reduce the size of of their premises uh, in my own, my own company, uh, we've lost two floors in Canary Wharf mm. on the basis that we no longer need them. We have a flexible working system whereby people can spend some time in the office, some time at home. There's no suggestion that the jobs that, that are, are done there could be outsourced to another country or something like that. And again, it's back to actually being a decent employer, I agree. and I don't see any reason why, I think is absolutely right, this kind of thing gives capitalism a bad name. Um, th- there's no reason why employers can't behave decently. That has not happened in this case, and the majority are, and we should actually welcome flexible working.
0: Well, I'll tell you, it gives capitalism a bad name. and I'll tell you what it also seems to have done, Given the brand a bad name, there is lots and lots of fury coming through on the email um, that I'm seeing as I speak to you. People are furious with p I think it is disgraceful the way that they've behaved. And many of you are saying that's it. You would never go on a p cruise again. Are you one of those people? Let me know your thoughts, gpviews at gpnews.uk. Going to take a quick break when we come back. I want to talk about Russia and Ukraine. There's a 15-point peace plan that's been created from Russia's side at least. Is this the beginning of the end and hopefully the route to peace? We'll have that and more coming up. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Dubry. Keeping me company tonight, my panel, Jonathan Steele, international affairs journalist, Charlotte Pickles, director of the Reform think tank and a former advisor to Ian Duncan-Smith. And as I was surprised to learn early, only because you look so young, <laughs> Nigel, honestly, I thought he was 21, he is Fleet Street's longest-serving political editor, Nigel Nelson. By the way, is Fleet Street even still sort a of thing?
2: No, it doesn't exist anymore, but we still call it Fleet Street. Uh, And I'm their Peter Pan of politics.
0: Are you now? Are you now? There you go. He is the Peter Pan of politics. Well, he joins us now. Uh, Let's move on, shall we? Talk about what has been dominating uh, the news. It has to be said is all about what's happening in Ukraine, specifically, of course, about Russia and what they are up to. Are we ever gonna reach peace? I mean we've had weeks now, haven't we, of bombardment thousands of death, an exodus of millions of refugees. What is the aim of this war? What is the way out? Well, according to the Financial Times, a 15-point peace plan has been drawn up and Ukraine want a ceasefire and a Russian withdrawal. Russia won't Kiev to accept neutrality and Kiev's on its armed forces. Ukraine would have to give up its bid to join NATO. And as we were discussing yesterday, there seems to be a bit of uh, movement in that direction. But it would also have to promise not to allow foreign military bases or weaponry into the country. The status of Ukrainian territories taken by Russian forces in 2014, though, could be a major stumbling block for an agreement. Um, Jonathan Steele, this is kind of your area, isn't it? Uh, International affairs, you've spent a lot of time in Russia yourself. Do you think that we are, you know, at the start of the end of all of this?
5: Well, I hope so, because the war is terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, The 15-point peace plan that the Financial Times mentioned is very much in Russia's favour. And we've already heard from President of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, that he's Disillusioned with NATO is saying, well, perhaps we don't need to join NATO. Perhaps we shouldn't have that as our ambition anymore And that's a move in the Russian direction But I think uh, the Ukrainians are faced with a very grim choice They either carry on fighting with the Russians destroying and demolishing most of their cities Killing lots of people forcing millions of people to become refugees or the Ukrainians have to accept pretty much what the Russians want Which is uh, end of uh, aspiration to join NATO, neutrality instead of that, demilitarization agreement, not to have foreign military bases on their soil, and perhaps even recognizing Crimea as part of Russia. But I mean, the the thing is, you, you have to choose if you're the president and the government of Ukraine, do we go on fighting knowing that in the end, the Russians will win because they are stronger. The resistance has been much better than expected, but it's still not good enough to hold back eventual Russian victory, but the victory will come at such a cost of destruction of cities. What will the refugees have to go back to? They'll never go back because their flats or homes will have been completely destroyed.
0: Charlotte, actually, I would um, imagine that lots of people in Ukraine actually do think that they can win this situation and will keep fighting until the end, whatever that end um, looks like. And I think that's an incredibly important point, which is that
3: the Ukrainian people actually do need to have a say in this. And, and, you know, we believe strongly in democratic countries in self-determination. And as we've just heard from Jonathan, this uh, peace proposal is very much what Russia is putting on the table, albeit I think a step back very much from what, what originally they were asking for. But I also think there's another layer to think about here, which is how far do we trust Putin? How far do we think if actually um, Ukraine says, all right, we, we won't seek NATO membership, uh, we won't have any foreign bases in our country, um, and OK, we're even open to having a conversation about the the, the land that you annexed uh, previously, which, as you've pointed out, is is very controversial. You know, this is a man who not only kept telling all the world leaders, oh no, he wasn't going to invade, he was just doing exercises and then invaded. This is a man who, um, when they have agreed in these negotiations to have ceasefires, to create humanitarian corridors, to allow children and pregnant women and you know vulnerable old age people to get out of cities that are being absolutely hammered and destroyed, that no, Putin's forces have bombed those humanitarian corridors. I just don't think we can sit here and trust that whatever this settlement looks like, Putin would hold to. And let's also remember that it's not just Ukraine, but all those other uh, bordering nations um, or very close nations that are members of NATO are massively beefing up their military forces. And Putin will see that as a big threat. do we not think he will then escalate, that he won't push further after this? I, I just think it's, it's too neat to think that this can all just be done and dusted based on this 15-point plan. Nigel? Um, yeah, I mean
2: I think I would take, uh, take Charlotte's point on one stage further. That the chances are that the war in Ukraine won't end until Putin has gone. Yes. And it'd be very difficult to get rid of Putin. Um, what I'm surprised about with the whole thing is that I thought originally that he was actually playing a blinder. It seemed to be that he'd um, uh, he put his forces out there, promised he wouldn't invade, making, and if he kept his word, that would have made uh, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden look a bit stupid for saying he would, and got us all looking at maps of Eastern Europe. And when you do that, you can see that, that um, if you were looking out from the Russian end, they are almost surrounded by NATO countries. And if you think NATO is an aggressor rather than a defensive alliance, which is what we think, you might be a bit scared about that. You've got um, Estonia and Latvia bang up against your borders. It would be a bit like um, Wales and Scotland being part of the old Warsaw Pact here. So you can understand from their point of view why they were worried about it. Now, of course, because of the invasion, because he lied through his teeth, NATO will be even stronger uh, and it will be much more difficult to do any kind of negotiation. But in those early days, you could have looked at Ukraine not being a member of NATO. You could have looked at missiles in Romania. You could have looked at withdrawing some of the tro- of, uh, Western troops from Estonia. Now you can't. The peace plan on the table, if Putin goes, could possibly work. The idea that um, Ukraine uh, doesn't join NATO doesn't ho- uh, host foreign military bases but keeps keeps uh, the Donbass and gets Crimea back that would be a recipe for peace
0: yeah and but I
5: don't think Putin's going to go. Uh, uh- Putin may go in two years' time or three years' time when the costs of this war begin to sink need a coup.
2: That's the only way he's going to but go He's now. not going to go now, so the peace
5: Ill. plan it can't be linked to whether Putin stays or goes. It's a peace plan that's on the table. The, the time element involves the destruction of all... The, Ukrainian cities. I mean, he's ruthless and he's bombing these cities and uh, more and more refugees are being forced out of the country. Three million already. There are 44 million Ukrainians. I mean, how many? Are we going to get up to 10 million, 20 million refugees? I think we just have to stop this. war won't have a ceasefire, even if it is the Russians who essentially get more out of it than the Ukrainian government.
3: But, but- Putin's. I mean, if you if you think about that, what was it, five thousand word essay that he wrote? I think it was last year. You know, the NATO, the Na- the idea that NATO is a threat to Russia is ludicrous because of the fact that it's a defensive alliance. Well, it's ludicrous it's to a, you,
0: but, but it, to him, but he might say that it's not. Ludicrous. Of course, to an irrational
3: person, it is not.
0: But well, I but think I think that's rational, the point. Hang on, I think there's rational people that would say that there are examples uh, of NATO not perhaps always acting in a defensive manner i think that there are people i mean i'd be interested in what irrational. the examples of nato well,
3: invading well, men- another country no, were we had yes, It had yeah. expanded hasn't
2: it i mean the one the one thing if you look at it if you're trying to look at it from there, from the russian point of view what you have seen is that nato forces expanding and um, the forces are closer to Russia than they were.
3: Because individual nations are taking sovereign decisions about their membership mm, of NATO, yeah. not because NATO is forcing themselves no, no, I get countries. that, But they still, they're so still are closer not, to the Russian border than they used to be. But that doesn't equal a threat to Russia. And going back to the essay, it, it is clear that actually Putin's ambition is to recreate a sort of czarist kind of empire. It, mm. And that's why the idea that he's going to say, oh, just a neutral... Ukraine is going to be fine, Mm
0: -hmm. I would
3: have serious question marks over. And at some point, I think you do have to stand up to someone who is just so so uh, clearly—I mean, I don't even want to use the word bully because it trivializes it. But I think the idea that we just say, you know, let's give him what he wants and then he will stop— I just, there's no evidence. Putin did accept
5: neutrality for 14 years until 2014. That was the official policy of the the, uh, Ukrainian government and indeed in the constitution, that it would be neutral, non-aligned. It was only when a different government came in 2014, started rushing to try and get into NATO, that Putin got excited. Was this what some might
0: describe as the coup? It it was a coup.
5: I didn't want to get into that because that's another big argument that people can fight over. But the point was it was neutral before. And then this new, more nationalistic, more pro-Western government came in that said, let's get into NATO. And that's, of course, why Putin took over Crimea, because the big fleet, Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol on the Crimea. And he was afraid it would become a NATO base instead of being
0: a Russian base. What would you say back to that? Because I think that there's a lot of, and I think it's quite a worrying sentiment that actually many people will just say, oh, you know, Putin is mentally ill or he's got an illness or he's just a madman and we've all got to stand up to him. And, you know, I'd be interested in things like, you know, no fly zones, for example. Zelensky is referring to this and calling for this frequently often. Do you think that should be off the table? I think the the, the no, I, I
3: I think it's heartbreaking the discussions around the um, no-fly zone because, um, from the sense that you you clearly want to do anything you possibly can to stop the Russian forces bombing civilian and humanitarian targets, I mean, bombing anyone whether they're civilian or not, but particularly at things like the hospitals, the theatre, the you know humanitarian corridors. And so my heart says, oh my gosh, let's do everything we possibly can to save lives. But, of course, your head has to take, then, again, a more rational response and say, but we can't create nuclear World War Three. That, I think, though, is still a distinction between saying, um, but the Ukraine, we shouldn't be supporting the Ukrainian people themselves. Well, we are
0: supporting that- the Ukrainian No, people. absolutely,
3: and I think we should do, and, and I think we should continue doing so. Um, I- I'm not disputing that at all. What I'm saying is that I think the idea that, in some way, Ukraine making their own decisions as a sovereign nation, you know, as a very much not quite the comparison, but as, as someone who voted for Brexit, I get that impulse to say actually a nation should be able to decide its own future, and why should someone next door say, oh, but if you join NATO, gosh, you might that could be a threat. I don't know, maybe you'll invade us. I just find to be be a, 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 just a very odd argument to make. The No Brexit so would have
2: been would have been incredibly dangerous. That um, if there are two red lines in this war, one red line is the NATO one. The, the Russian troops must not put one toe over... One toe a,
0: cap, wasn't it? That was. That's the right, word, into that a NATO country. A, yeah.
2: The other red line, which is important to remember, we mustn't be giving Ukraine weapons that could actually hit Moscow. So that was why that the Polish MiG-29s mm-hmm. they were going to send into Ukraine, why that was vetoed by America, because that brings us one stage closer to World War Three.
0: It certainly does. And I I just worry a little bit with this whole... Uh, war, invasion, conflict, you know, I just worry a little bit often it gets kind of quite oversimplified and this is a quite complicated, uh, certainly many would argue quite long uh, in the making. This isn't something that's just come about three weeks ago or whatever the time frame is—is is We're still three weeks. We're not onto the fourth three week. Exactly yeah. Three awful weeks. I mean, it's unimaginable. You cannot simply imagine what it must be like uh, for the Ukrainians at the moment. It must be absolutely horrific. Uh, well, obviously, we all hope that we are closer to peace than we were at this time yesterday. Um, we shall see. We shall see what happens. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I will be reading out uh, some of your comments on those last stories. I do want to make a very important point there before I head to the break. I think I misspoke in my earlier parts. I was referring uh, to p ferries, just to be absolutely clear. The situation that we were discussing at the start of this program refers to p ferries, not p cruises, two separate companies, and if I reference piano cruises, That was absolutely uh, a wrong speak on my part, so apologies for that. Going to take a quick break and I'll see you in a couple of minutes. (music) Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Dubry, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, Jonathan Steele, who's the international affairs journalist, Charlotte Pickles, who's the director of the Reform Think Tank and former advisor to Ian Duncan-Smith and Fleet Street's longest-serving political editor. I love that title. I think it's excellent. (laughs) Nigel Nelson, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let's talk about uh, MPs and politics, shall we? Because plans to cap MPs' earnings from second jobs have been scrapped, as ministers said it would be, I quote, impractical. It follows outrage after the Owen Paterson lobbying scandal, which found that MPs were earning... THOUSANDS FROM SECOND JOBS. I WOULD SAY THOUSANDS AND THOUSANDS AND THOUSANDS AND THOUSANDS, BUT YOU GET MY GIST. ANYWAY, they were, THEY WERE RAKING IT IN, EVERYONE, RAKING IT IN FROM THEIR SECOND JOBS. AND AFTER THE SCANDAL, YOU MIGHT REMEMBER ALL THIS WHOLE DEBACLE, uh, MINISTERS PLEDGED TO camp, CLAMP DOWN ON SECOND JOBS BY EITHER LIMITING WORKING HOURS OR LIMITING PAY. BUT THEY FOUND THAT FIXED LIMITS ON HOURS WOULD BE IMPRACTICAL. They also said that a cap on earnings could end up prohibiting activities which do not bring undue influence to bear on the political system, for example, such as writing a book. But what do we reckon to this? Should there be a cap on MPs uh, having second jobs? I'm going to save the best to last. When I say the best, <laughs> I mean the longest. And I read that you won some schools thing. Did I watching, make
2: that up? No, I, was doing, I was judging a school debating competition. Well, and, uh, there you go. That's slightly different.
3: Oh, well, <laughs> there you go.
0: Uh, I'm going to start with you then, Charlotte, if I may.
3: I mean, it, it's sort of, I'm reminded of the conversation we had earlier about, you know, ethical behaviour in this conversation. Because, um, to be honest, I'm slightly baffled as to why we even need to say that MPs should be spending the vast, 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 vast majority of their time uh and certainly their main focus on being an MP. And it's a really full-time job. You know, if you're serving your constituents um, and you know, you only have to look at the sort of mailbags and the challenges that MPs are are dealing with on a day to day basis, and you're supposed to be our, our national legislature. I don't know how on earth you're supposed to fit in a second job in that, unless you're not spending enough time on doing those other two things, which is your core role that taxpayers are funding you so to So did Ian Duncan Smith not used to have any second jobs? Or? I honestly can't answer that. I don't know. I worked for him uh, when he was a minister, and he was in there every hour of the day. So I was not aware of him doing anything else during that period. But you'd have to ask him today if he, if he does anything else. But I think that the I think there is a genuine challenge on saying, so does that mean an MP can't be paid, for example, to give a speech or to write an article for a newspaper, because most newspapers will pay uh, for a, a comment piece for, for an MP, um, or write a book in your spare weekend, at, you know, uh, spare evenings or, or weekend. Um, but I do think there should be, quite frankly, a ban on doing something like Geoffrey Jeff, Cox did, which was the Conservative MP who seemed to be spending most of his time Uh, uh, in other countries, certainly during the pandemic, uh, being a lawyer, and I think that is not acceptable. And so I think they have to find, if they're not gonna do this, what is their solution?
0: Jonathan Steele?
5: Well, I mean, I think the best idea is to limit the time people have on second jobs. It, It can't be impractical to calculate how much time people spend in the constituency, how much time in parliament, Itself and how much time on this second job they've got. But maybe one should be even more draconian and simply say, ban all second jobs for MPs. I mean, being an MP is a big job. It's important, it's uh, almost uh, unending because there's so many demands from constituents to listen to their problems and to try and help them. So maybe we should just ban second jobs altogether.
0: No second jobs at all. Jonathan's not messing around, is he? Nigel? Um, Well, I'm sort of
2: with with, with Jonathan, with with, uh, a caveat to that. Um, yes, I think that there, there are second jobs they shouldn't be doing. They should not be directors of companies. Uh, they should not be consultants. They're not meant to be lobbyists. But, of course, the, the two former can often lead to the latter. Um, however, I don't want to ban MPs from being doctors, from being nurses. Um, it is, it is uh, apart from the fact that they're doing good work I- in jobs like that, it's also very important to know what's going on on the front line.
0: So they can I have a second them. job, but only one that you approve of? Well, exactly. well I'm a second.
2: I mean, they're, they're jobs that, 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 that can't influence their work in Parliament. If you are a director, ask yourself why that firm is employing an what, MP. A, what
0: about if you're a director of um, a charity?
2: Same thing. You ask why that charity is employing that MP. If you're a consultant, why are you being employed? Why are these MPs suddenly uh, skilled at doing jobs that they've had no experience at? But some of them have.
3: Some of them. Some of them. So, I mean, I. I would broadly support your your main argument there but actually some of them were in business in companies working before so it's not it, it, I don't think it's fair at all to say that um, suddenly people are doing things that they're not qualified to do I'm sure some of them are but but I don't think in general I'm also struggle with the idea that it's okay to go and spend half your week or even a day a week being a doctor or a nurse or a police officer or whatever it might be because you're paid by taxpayers to be an MP. And I don't see what the difference is. I also don't agree actually that there's not a conflict because um, I'm pretty sure most of the people who work in the NHS, uh, uh, MPs who who work in the NHS, or indeed another public sector role, will be pretty vocal about, for example, more money going into the NHS. And I'm not sure how that is different to if you're a director of company and you're arguing for, you know, I don't know, some, some not lobbying, not specifically, but arguing for some reform in, in some law or regulation, that would be, you think, would be a genuinely beneficial thing, in the same way that a doctor thinks that genuinely more money going into the NHS would be a, a well, good thing. The difference is th- profit th-
2: and public th- service, isn't
3: it? I, I don't think so, no, because actually profit is what pays for public service. So why on earth would you not want people who've got experience of business, who are identifying challenges that are meaning that we don't create as much wealth in order to pay for our public well, services? The profit shouldn't
2: be paying for the NHS. Interest.
3: But it's literally what taxes are coming from, right? If companies don't make profit, how do they employ people? How do you create jobs? How do you then fund we're, it? We're
2: going circular round about capitalism again. But, but, but I think it's a
3: point about good and bad jobs, and I think the idea that public sector jobs are good and private sector jobs are bad is profoundly unhelpful. But,
2: but this is where, where the, the uh, Committee for Standards comes in within the House of Commons, that um, I think that they should be the people to police and approve what those jobs are and how much time you can devote to them. I, I go with the time thing, I'm not sure you can actually cap earnings. I think that's going to be different. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but kidding. I don't know what you do about Sir Geoffrey Cox, as you pointed out.
0: <laughs> we can agree <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Pamela has written in saying, no, she says, there should not ever be a limit or a ban on second jobs. Lots of people have second jobs. They can't be different from the general public. What do you think there, Pamela? Because one thing that really uh, irks me actually is politicians on reality shows. Serving politicians, am I...
2: I think they shouldn't do it. Am I deluding I mean, that, yeah, myself? There, there think would be that, something, if I, if I was the Commissioner for Standards, I'd say, no way do you, do you um, go into the jungle and Doris, she, or whatever. She
0: went into the exactly. jungle while she was being paid by us. I mean, surely that cannot be right. Uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I've got to say there'll be a lot of people watching that actually wish that a lot of these MPs would get out of here. Uh, We can but hope, can't we? Anyway, that is all we've got time for. Thank you very much for your company and thank you to my panel uh, tonight for their insights, for their company and for saying lots of things that, quite frankly, I disagree with and some I agree with. What about you? I'll see you tomorrow.